Please take your Bibles and turn, if you would, to Matthew chapter 6. The Gospel of Matthew chapter 6. We'll read this morning the first 18 verses of the sixth chapter of Matthew. As you're turning there, just a quick word to the children among us. Uh, kids, in the Bible, uh, God often uses uh, images that we see in our daily lives as illustrations uh, for truths that we ought to believe. Uh, so we have the image of a rainbow, which is to symbolize God's commitment to never flood the earth again. Other such images that he'll use to teach us truths. One of the images he uses is the image of lightning. Uh, there's been some lightning outside this morning. I want to encourage you, whenever you see lightning, kids, uh, to think upon this picture that we're given of lightning in the Bible. In Matthew 24, Jesus tells us that his coming again, when he returns, it'll be like lightning that flashes across the sky. That is, it'll be sudden. In a moment, he will come again, and he will come in glory and in power. He'll come to judge all of his enemies, and he'll come to save all of his people. And to those who are Christians, this is great news. We cannot wait until that lightning flashes across the sky when Christ will come again in a moment and we will be saved fully and finally. I want to encourage you, that's only good news, kids, to all those who love Christ's appearing, all those who have trusted in Christ. His coming again is wonderful news and it's a wonderful day that's coming. I would encourage you kids, even today, to prepare your hearts to meet the Lord when He comes again. It won't come with warning. It'll come like lightning that flashes across the sky. Let's read together Matthew chapter 6, verses 1 through 18. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and the streets, that they might be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they might be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Verse 16. And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces, that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head, and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Let's go to God in prayer again. Let's all pray together. Lord, we are aware that at all times we are under your watchful eye, that we are in your presence and under your eye now. You see us, each one of us. You see us together as a community of your people. And you see us when we're in secret. Uh, Father, we thank you that that thought is to provoke comfort and courage in us to come to you. For those of us who have been saved through Jesus Christ, who are your children, you are our Heavenly Father. And we do love to think about the secret place where you see us and you know us. We pray that that place would become sweeter and more precious to us today. We pray that we would love more privacy with God, communion and fellowship with you. 
where our hearts can run out to you and your heart to ours. Father, please bless the ministry of your word this morning. May it bear fruit in all of our lives. We pray together in Jesus' name. Amen. We have four elders or pastors. We use those words interchangeably. Four elders in this church who are tasked with the leading, the caring of, and the overseeing of the congregation. Those elders are Ben Allen, Mike Clark, Brad Kinnison, and myself. And it's been a real joy and a pleasure to observe the different graces and gifts and strengths that God has given uh, to these different men and to see how they come together in the context of our shared eldership and our chemistry with one another. Uh, It also is uh, pleasant to observe some of the uh, temperaments that are different between each man, uh, some of the quirks and the personality traits that mark each one. Uh, I could say things about Pastor Brad. He is quite frugal. I could say things about Pastor Ben, he's rather sleepy. Uh, I could say things about Pastor Mike, and it's Pastor Mike I want to focus on for the purpose of the introduction of this sermon. Uh, Pastor Mike in our eldership is sort of affectionately known as sort of the steward or the custodian of random facts and information and proverbs and anecdotes that you didn't know you needed to know. And our eldership has been enriched and helped by these facts that Pastor Mike will marshal at Uh, the time in which you least expect it. So thanks to Pastor Mike, I now understand what the protocol is for aircraft pilots if the plane is going down. I know what the protocol is, and it has to do with not overreacting. You're not supposed to put your hands on all the machinery right away. You take a minute, you wind your watch or something like that. You're not to overreact, and that's helped us, that proverb, as uh, elders. I now know a lot more about Civil War battles and Civil War generals, thanks to Pastor Mike. I now know what General James Longstreet would do if he were in our shoes, which is very valuable information as it turns out. I also now know, uh, thanks to Pastor Mike, what is uh, the state motto for North Carolina. I wonder if you know the state motto. It's a Latin phrase. The phrase is esse quam videri. We have some Kids here who study Latin, I wonder if you could translate that off the top of your head. Esse quam videri. Do you know what that means? That means to be rather than to seem. To be rather than to seem. In other words, as North Carolinians, the idea goes, we would want to be in our character, in our essence, in our hearts. Virtuous people. The real deal. A people of real, authentic character. Not to be those who just seem to be that way. Who live life in public. Who live life in a superficial and shallow kind of way. And though they might fool others that they really are the thing, they're not really the thing. To be rather than to see. If you're familiar with the little devotional book, The Valley of Vision. Wonderful book. We have it in our bookstall. Excellent devotional resource. It's a record of various prayers that saints have prayed throughout the years, particularly the Puritans. Uh, Early on in one of the first prayers, one of the most well-known petitions in the Valley of Vision goes like this. Lord, help me to be in reality before Thee as in appearance I am before men. I want to be in reality in private before God, quorum Deo, before the face of God, But maybe I seem to be or appear to be when out in public. I want to be esse quam videre, to be rather than to seem. That petition from the Valley of Vision, that Latin phrase could be written over our text this morning. Jesus wants to teach us in our personal piety and in our walk with God how to be before God what we might appear to be before men. To be rather than merely to seem. To truly walk with God in the secret place. In the inner person, the inner man, the inner woman. To know God in truth. And not simply to make a pretense at it in public. To have God's eye and God's approval and God's smile as our chief reward. And not the approval and the applause of man. This Sunday, I want us to consider... Uh, verses 1 through 8, and then verses 16 through 18. Then next week, God willing, we'll return to this passage again and consider the Lord's Prayer recorded in verses 9 through 14. I do think the way this chapter is to be broken down is that 
Jesus has three traditional acts of piety or spiritual devotion in his mind, giving to the needy, tithes, uh, prayer to God, and then fasting. And when he's talking about prayer, the Lord's Prayer becomes a kind of excursus. So he tells us how to not be like the hypocrites in our praying, but then he instructs us in how to pray. I want to return to that next week. We'll have, God willing, two weeks in our consideration of the Lord's Prayer. But this morning we'll look at verses 1 through 8 and verses 16 through 18. And I'd like to outline the text this way. Two main points this morning with a handful of subpoints, but two main points. First of all, we'll consider the call to acts of personal piety. The call to acts of personal piety. And then secondly, we'll see true and false piety contrasted. The call to acts of personal piety and then true and false piety contrasted. Consider with me firstly, the call to acts of personal piety. Now I'm using that word piety. I wonder how many of you could define that word piety. Uh, probably, if that word is used at all today, it's used as um, like a slur. Oh, you're so pious, aren't you? Oh, she's so pious, he's so pious. That's kind of how we use that term. It's really a shame the word is being used that way. I don't use older words because I think there's a particular virtue in using older words, but today I have to use this older word, I think, because there really is no near synonym to the word piety. It is a unique word that does a lot of heavy lifting for us. The word piety refers to experiential godliness. It refers to private devotion. A man or woman's piety is who they are before the Lord and how they live that out and work that out in various spiritual disciplines. To speak of a man or woman's piety is in essence to speak of their walk with God. And therefore, piety becomes among the most important things we could talk about or think about. Because the essence of the Christian life and the Christian faith and what we'll be doing for all eternity is to fellowship with God and to commune with Him and to walk with Him and to be in His presence. Piety refers to who we are before the Lord and how we walk in obedience before Him. So that's what I'm talking about this morning. I think in this passage, we're called to acts of personal piety. And then true piety is contrasted with a false piety. We're looking now at the call to acts of personal piety. Now, the main thrust in the passage is to contrast hypocritical false piety with the true piety Jesus calls us to as his disciples. However, I do think assumed in this passage is a call that we would be pious ourselves and that we would give ourselves to particular acts of devotion. Jesus just assumes them, but I want to kind of bring them under the microscope and manifest them a little more. What are the three acts of piety or acts of spiritual devotion that Christ is calling us to in this passage? The first is that we would give to the needy. The second is that we would pray to him. And the third is that we would fast. And where am I getting that? If you look at verse 2, we read, when you give to the needy. Not if you give to the needy. He's assuming his disciples citizens of his kingdom, children of the heavenly father, they will be giving to the needy. Like, this is what we do. This is characteristic of my people. When you give to the needy. And then in verse 5, he says, when you pray. That's not in the imperative form, but it amounts to something of an imperative. He's assuming it. When you pray, you should be praying. And then in verse 16, he says, when you fast, you ought to fast. I'm expecting my disciples will do this, and when they do it, there's a certain way they should go about it. So I just want to pull those three activities up out of the text for just a minute, look at them a little more closely, and then we'll move on to our second point. But let's consider these three acts of piety that I'm saying Christ calls us to as those who are his disciples. First of all, Christians are called to exercise personal benevolence. Called to give to the needy is the language of the text. They're called to exercise personal benevolence. Look at verse 2, if you would. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, verse 3. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. What is the responsibility enjoined upon Christians in this text? Simply put, it is that Christians themselves are called to be personally benevolent toward others particularly those who are in need. This is practical need, material need, financial need. Christians, we who are the Lord's people, are called to personal benevolence to the needy. Our hearts, as well as our wallets, our purses, our pocketbooks, are to be open to the needy 
And we are called to make benevolent use of our resources to help other people. We're to tithe. We're to give alms. We're to engage in mercy ministry. We're to serve the poor. We're to minister to the needy in practical ways. Jesus assumes, as a matter of course, his disciples will have compassion on needy people, and that, that compassion will at some point become practical. Like it literally looks like writing a check to someone else to meet them in their time of need, or providing a meal, or opening up your home, or doing some practical good to someone else who is in need. Jesus expects that we'll do this. And this is by no means, friends, an obscure theme or concept in the Bible. We're told to love our neighbors as ourselves, Matthew 22 and other passages. And we're told in uh, Luke's epistle, chapter 18, uh, that we are to, excuse me, Luke 10, that we're to be like the Good Samaritan. Uh, what did the Good Samaritan do? He found someone in need and for love for that man's soul. He used his resources benevolently to meet that particular need. Paul, in the epistle to Titus, tells Titus that Christ has come to redeem a people who are zealous for good works. That's not good works like praying in private. That's good works like benevolence, kindness, generosity, charity toward others. We know that because in Titus chapter 3, Paul again reminds him of good works, and he says these good works meet cases of urgent need, practical need. Galatians 6.10 tells us that we're to do good to all, especially those who are of the household of faith. It's always surprising to me. I will sometimes hear people use that verse as an excuse for why benevolence and generosity among Christians should only be directed toward people in the church. I would say, do good to all, especially the household of faith. See, pastor, we're to give to people in the church, but it's not mainly about people outside the church. If I said to you, or to my kids, let's say, uh, kids, mom and dad are uh, going out on a date. In our kids' case, that would be illegal because they're so young, but imagine they're older, that um, we're going out on a date, and we want you guys to clean the whole house, especially those dirty dishes in the kitchen. And if all they did was clean the dirty dishes in the kitchen, but the rest of the house was left untidy, would they have been obedient to the command that I gave them? No, not at all. We're to do good to all. We're to be kind and benevolent and generous toward all, especially the household of faith. I think Spurgeon says it best. You've heard this quote from me many times. He says, to me, a follower of Jesus means a friend of man. A Christian is a philanthropist by profession and generous by force of grace. Wide as the reign of sorrow is the stretch of his love, and where he cannot help, he pities still. Time was when, wherever a man met a Christian, he met a helper. I shall starve, said he, until he saw a Christian's face. And then he said, now I shall be aided. That's a wonderful description of a Christian disciple. We ought to be known as the Lord's people for our universal kindness and benevolence toward others. And you'll notice the benevolence in the passage is to be disinterested benevolence. You're not to let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, right? Which is another way of saying, don't keep a tally of all your good works. Don't keep a record of all the good that you've done. Don't pat yourself on the back and say, what a good boy am I? I just gave $20 to someone who was in need. No, you're not to let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. I've had the very pleasant experience of reminding uh, Christian brethren in my past of benevolent things they have done for me. So some years on, I'll say, you know, when I was in need and you did this for me, that really meant the world to me. And that was so kind of you to do that. And I bless God for that. And I've had the pleasant experience of them sometimes saying, I don't know what you're talking about. I've completely forgotten about that. Those are people who don't let their left hand know what the right hand is doing. They're not keeping a record. They're just living as God's people, doing good wherever they go. Well, we're first called to be benevolent toward others. The second act of devotion or personal piety we're called to, of course, is prayer. Now, three times in verse 5, 6, and 7, Jesus says, when you pray, when you pray, when you pray. Verse 6 says it this way, but when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Now, friends, communion with God in prayer in which you disclose your heart to the Lord, make your petitions known to Him, worship Him, communicate your love and devotion to Him, your thankfulness for all that's been achieved for you in the gospel, in which you unburden your mind and your heart and your life and have true intercourse between your heart and His. Such communion with God in prayer is meant to be the oxygen of the Christian life. 
We breathe in and we breathe out. Prayer is like that. It's to be the oxygen of the Christian life, the ethos of the whole Christian life. We're to go to God privately as His children and pray to Him, and we're to pray daily. We're to pray all the time. Uh, We're to pray publicly in the context of the gathering, corporately. This is to be the very basic thing that marks Christian people. There is nothing more basic to Christian piety than prayer. J.C. Ryle goes as far as to say prayerless people are not genuine Christians. He just can't fathom a Christian who does not routinely, regularly, as a matter of habit and life and whole ethos, going to God in prayer day by day. So, my friend, I just ask you on this point, are you praying to God every day? Do you make it your habit to bring your soul to Him, to bring your burdens to Him? Do you talk to Him? Do you commune with Him? Is it your daily habit to go to your Father in heaven and to speak to Him about the concerns of your soul? In the next two sermons, we'll consider in greater depth how we ought to pray. But I just want to ask the question this morning, are we praying? When Jesus says, when you pray, did you have to think back, now when was the last time I did that? Was it I enjoyed prayer before God this morning and the day before? I seek to pray to Him without ceasing. This should mark those who are the Lord's disciples. The third and final act of devotion which is enjoined upon the Lord's people is found in verses 16 through 18. Christians are called to fasting. To fasting. Kids, that's not like running really fast. Fasting is something different than that. Uh, This, of all three of the acts of personal devotion we're called to, is probably the one we talk about the least in Christian circles. Uh, It's probably the one that is practiced the least uh, among Christians today. And there may be good reasons for that, actually. Uh, First of all, uh, the New Testament doesn't actually contain an express command to fast, but rather contains a few statements that seem to assume we will fast. Uh, So the disciples at times fasted, uh, the apostles in the book of Acts fasted, Uh, Paul will speak about people fasting. It's never given as a command, but it seems to be assumed that the Lord's people would do it. But second, uh, fasting in the Old Testament among early Christians, as we see it done in Scripture, was seldom practiced as a frequent or daily activity. Unlike prayer, for example, which we should engage in daily, giving to the needy should be a frequent thing that we do. Uh, Fasting seems to be more occasional in Scripture. In fact, the only command for Israel is that they would fast once a year. Now, as it turns out, they did often fast more than that, but it was just an annual sort of thing that the Israelites did. So what is fasting and why should God's people engage themselves in fasting? Fasting was typically an activity in which the individual would forego food, or some other regular activity or pleasure to communicate dependence on God and a humble looking up to Him for help, blessing, or deliverance. I have some burden on my heart, something I want to bring to God. I'm going to take a day to fast. I might forego food. Couples would sometimes forego intimacy for a time for the purposes of dedicated prayer. Any number of things we might forego to bring ourselves to God and communicate more consecrated dependence upon Him. It was often occasioned by some particular need or burden among God's people, and fasting was a way of consecrating oneself and devoting oneself to God, setting aside necessary food in order to give oneself more devotedly to prayer. Uh, In fasting, it's been said, our uh, physical hunger for food becomes a symbol or a picture of our spiritual hunger for God and our desire that He would do things for us that only He can do. Many of God's people in the Bible devoted themselves to fasting. The saints throughout history have fasted also. I do believe based on this passage and others, Christians are called to fast. This has the effect of an imperative. When you fast, when you engage in this thing, you're to do it in a certain way. So we should do it, I think, privately in conjunction with various burdens we have personally. I think it's legitimate to fast corporately as God's people did in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. Uh, We had a corporate fast recently in prayer for a member of our church who's in a very distressing uh, situation physically. We set aside a day as a church to fast and many of us were able to engage in that. I've known parents of adult children who are not walking with God and they will mark a day every week on which they fast and pray for their child's salvation. I've known gatherings of Christians who have appointed a day every month to fast, asking God to bring revival in their churches and in their community and in their 
a nation. Christians who fast, asking God to bring healing to people, relief from suffering and deliverance from trial. In all these cases, fasting frees up time, focuses our hearts, and communicates our resolution to seek the Lord and to depend on Him. That's the call to fasting. So we see Jesus joining upon His disciples uh, these three acts of spiritual piety and devotion. We're to be benevolent toward others, giving to the needy, and we're to do so in disinterested fashion. And we're to pray to our Heavenly Father, and we're to fast. Well, now let's consider the second point, which I think is the main thrust of the passage now. Let's consider true and false piety contrasted. What does true piety look like? What does false piety look like? And in fact, let's look at false piety first. Because I think Jesus is setting that up as kind of the backdrop to consider true piety. Let's consider, first of all, false piety unmasked. False piety unmasked. In these verses, Jesus means to show up the false piety of a group he calls the hypocrites. The hypocrites. He uses that word hypocrite three times in this passage. He uses it with reference to all three acts of piety. There was a particular way the hypocrites were engaging in benevolence, engaging in prayer, engaging in fasting. And Jesus sets that up as the backdrop uh, to be contrasted with what true piety ought to look like. Now, what is a hypocrite? Again, children here. Have you heard that word hypocrite? Well, you know if you've read much of the Bible, it's not a good thing, obviously. The hypocrites are never the good guys. Do you know what a hypocrite is? Now, the word hypocrite originally described actors on a stage who wore masks. It was people pretending to be something in one arena that they were not in another arena, they would seem to be somebody that they really, in fact, were not. That's literally what a hypocrite is. Jesus applies that word used for actors on a stage to certain members of the religious community of his day. What would be his point in using that word hypocrite, that word used for actors on a stage, to describe these people? Jesus is saying these people are not in truth what they are in appearance. They are not in private what they appear to be in public. That motto, esse quam videre, to be rather than to seem, is not true in their case. They knew how to seem. They did not know how to be. That's what a hypocrite is. Now, who are the hypocrites that Jesus is referring to here? It's easy, of course, to speculate that Jesus has the Pharisees in view, the religious leaders of the day. In fact, in Luke 18, we have the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. They both go into the temple to pray. Of course, the tax collector stands afar off, beats his breast, can't even look up to God and ask for God to show him mercy. What does the Pharisee do? Well, he's praying in a public place very loudly, boasting of his piety. And what does he boast about? He boasts about giving to the needy, and he boasts about fasting. Here he is praying in public, the one act of piety, and he says, I, I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all I get. He's boasting about how he is performing these acts of piety. Certainly the Pharisees, I think, have to be in the crosshairs here. Uh, but I don't think we should limit the hypocrites only to the religious leaders. Uh, we will see other hypocrites throughout this gospel. Judas was a hypocrite. Judas appeared to be the real deal. But in his heart, he was not. He was wearing a mask all the while planning to betray his Lord. See, hypocrisy is no respecter of persons. It's no respecter of office. I know in our context with so many public scandals out there, particularly with men in leadership in churches, uh, when we think of hypocrite, we can often think of those in leadership. Well, many men in leadership are hypocrites. Uh, but friends, I assure you there are plenty of hypocrites among the laity as much as there are among the clergy. Uh, any of us could be guilty of this hypocrisy. Well, what I want us to do is to identify some of the traits of this false piety, some of the traits of this hypocrisy so that we could be on guard against it in ourselves. And there's four traits in particular I'll briefly highlight. First of all, false piety is marked by performance and public display. False piety is marked by performance and public display. Look again at Jesus' words in verse 1. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. Verse 2, thus when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you. Like, hear, hear, look at me. 
Verse 5, and when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Verse 16, and when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces, that their fasting may be seen by others. Jesus is highlighting the preoccupation of false piety with the view and the gaze of other people. For them, it's not about being real before the Lord. It's a matter of appearing to be something before men. That is the preoccupation of the hypocrites. Look at me. Look at my righteousness. Look what I am doing for God. Look at my humility. Look at my devotion. It's a parade of performance and self-righteousness. In our own context, we see people do this all the time, don't we? Uh, You all know those kinds of people who have a way of uh, slipping into conversation, uh, their good works and their good deeds. Or somehow when they're about to do something uh, for the church, somehow it's always sort of managed to get kind of maximal publicity on the scene for when they are going to serve. All their stuff is done out in public. Uh, We have new ways of doing this, I think, on social media. Uh, Social media, these various apps that many of us use and consume, Social media is grooming a generation of performers and fakers. What do we do on social media? We always put up like the the best sort of portrayal of ourselves. I'm starting to doubt whether anyone has ever exercised or worked out in their entire lives without posting a picture of it on social media, right? Getting my sweet gains in the gym, right? I'm obviously not doing that. But, But still, some people, you know, it's, look at me, look what I'm doing. We post about our achievements. We boast about all these kinds of things, and we can do this also with our piety, with our spirituality. We used to have this joke in college. You've heard the philosophical question. You know, if a tree falls in the forest and no one there is there to hear the sound of it, does it make a sound? And the joke would go, you know, if a girl has her devotions without posting a picture of her open Bible with a cup of coffee next to it, did it happen? You know? Well, obviously that's Humorous, it's a bit mean, but you get the point. Oh, we can do this, right? Portraying that we're truly spiritual people. And maybe the root of the issue is not in us. Our society is grooming us to think, not in terms of who we are in private, but what we manifest publicly to the world to be seen, to invite clicks and likes and shares and comments. We're being discipled, if you will, to think that way. Well, as Christians, we should reject that. True Christian piety is not like the false piety of the hypocrites. I'm not saying it's wrong to post a verse on social media or to post about your devotions. I'm not saying that. But you get the point. We can live as performers and actors on a stage when really in private we're not the real deal. A second marker of this false piety. False piety aims at the approval and applause of men. Uh, Verse 2, thus when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. It's not just to be seen, but to be applauded and to be praised. Hypocritical piety is designed to be seen by others in order to win the approval and applause of others. You can see the hypocrite's fixation is not on God and his eye and his approval. The fixation is on what man can see. I'm interested in what others think about me. That is the controlling thought of false piety. I'm reminded of the Lord's words to Samuel. Uh, Man looks on the outward appearance. God looks on the heart. Uh, The Pharisee, the hypocrite, the falsely pious man or woman is all caught up with the outward appearance and having the praise and approval of men. And I'll just say, brothers and sisters, we can all be guilty of this, can't we? Even as I'm preaching this sermon, I'm aware in my own mind of ways I've failed in this area, Uh, doing things ostensibly in service to Christ that really are in service to our own reputations, securing the good opinion of others. Certainly men can preach and teach out of this motivation. People can pray publicly with this motivation. People can serve in visible ways with the motive of being seen. And Jesus says in our passage in each case, Truly, I tell you, they have their reward. What does that mean? They wanted the applause of man, and they got it. And the implication seems to be, by living for and working for the attention and the applause and praise of man, they forfeited the approval of God. 
Uh, you, you want man's approval. You want people to look after your reputation, to see your piety performed in public. They'll see you and they'll applaud you and you'll have your moment in the sun. But you won't have approval from God. The third marker of false piety, false piety gives little thought to God. False piety gives little thought to God. You'll notice in our passage with each, with each reference to the hypocrites, there's no mention of God at all. He's just not in their framework or their orbit. They will certainly say they are doing things for God. They'll talk about God a great deal. And they'll talk much about their relationship with Him and their commitment to Him. They will remind you always of their closeness to the Lord. But it's all fake. They have little regard for God. They don't actually know Him. They pretend to know Him. And He's not in their minds or in their hearts at all. There is no serious desire to be known and seen by God and God alone. They don't know anything about communion with Him in secret, of having a history with Him that is only known to their soul and to God's. They understand nothing of those words of Asaph in Psalm 73, verse 25, Whom have I in heaven but you? And on earth there's no one I desire beside you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my life and my portion forever. In other words, I don't care about man. I care about God. To the hypocrite and to the falsely pious person, that's like a foreign language. You start talking about communion with God in private, walking with God, fellowship with God building a history with God. They don't know what you're talking about. Their piety is not regulated by private communion with God, where the greatest prize is the warmth of His smile and nearness. They know not God, and He is far from their thoughts, even as they perform their religion before others. Uh, fourthly, and finally, and most briefly, fourth mark of false piety. False piety is devoid of all sincerity, humility, and authenticity. False piety is devoid of all sincerity, humility, and authenticity. Simply put, such people are not in any way real. Such people are shallow, they're superficial, they spend their days playing games in religion, and they get what they're after. They get the approval and applause of man, but they're fakers the whole time, and they miss out on God. They're not authentic in their piety. They're not sincere in their religion. They don't truly walk with God. And at its root, it's all a farce and a performance. Well, at this point, friends, before considering what true piety looks like in closing, I just encourage each one, in light of this passage, search your heart. Uh, if Christianity for you has been a game, uh, has been a performance, you feel like an actor on a stage. This isn't real for me. I've been a hypocrite. The real thing is not within me. I've simply learned how to be religious, how to perform the duties, how to go through the motions, how to make everyone around me esteem me and think I'm something I'm not. My friend, thank God for this sermon. And thank God for this passage. And I urge you, take the mask off and come to God. I just say, I'm through being a hypocrite. I'm not going to live my life as a faker, regardless of what all these people think. I want God's approval. I don't want to just seem. I want to be. I want to know fellowship and communion with God and salvation in Jesus Christ. Take off the mask and in repentance and faith, go to Jesus Christ and He'll receive you. He'll have you. Friends, all of us here who are in Christ, we had to do this at some point. We're fakers, we're hypocrites, we're not who we think we are or who we lead the world to think that we are. We needed to see ourselves at some point the way God sees us, as sinners in need of grace, sinners in need of salvation. Take off the mask and stop pretending and enjoy the freedom that comes with it. Not to have to act like something you're not, but to, in freedom, bring your sins before the Lord, confess them to Him, repent of them, turn from them, and you will experience through faith in Jesus Christ, deeper fellowship and communion and friendship and closeness with God than you have ever experienced while being an actor on the stage. You've ever experienced in your years of pretending. You can know God in ways you cannot possibly imagine if you will take off the mask and embrace the gospel and believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ. You will have God as your heavenly Father and you will know fellowship with Him. Let's consider in the moments that remain, true piety revealed. We've seen false piety unmasked. Now let's consider true piety 
revealed. Again, Jesus sets up the hypocrites as the backdrop, but now he wants to contrast true piety with false piety. What should mark the inner spiritual life of the Lord's disciples? What should mark their devotion to him? What does true piety look like according to Jesus? And there's three primary markers that were given in this text. The first is the most important. True piety is marked by private devotion before God. True piety, true godliness, true fellowship with God is marked not by public display, but by private devotion before God. Look at this in verse 6. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. The emphasis is on being with God in private. Personal devotion in private. That's why we call it our devotions. Being with God in private, alone with Him, communing with Him in the secret place. I love what J.C. Ryle says here. We should endeavor to find some place where no mortal eye sees us and where we can pour out our hearts with the feeling that no one else is looking at us but God. Isn't that wonderful? That captures the spirit of this text. John Calvin says, we ought to be satisfied with having God for our only witness. Those who love God and godliness love privacy with Him. True piety loves to be alone with God. If there's any statement I make this morning that I hope stays in your mind, it is this, that true piety loves to be alone with God. Another thing about Pastor Mike, he loves Sinclair Ferguson. I love Sinclair Ferguson. We'll share texts and articles and sermons from Sinclair Ferguson. Sinclair Ferguson is a Scottish minister still living today. He's rather advanced in years. Great Bible teacher. I commend his books and sermons to you. I've heard Sinclair Ferguson say this numbers of times. I've heard him say this live under his preaching. I've seen it in books. I've heard it on tapes. Sinclair Ferguson would commend to every Christian. He'd say it different ways, different times. But it goes something like this. That every Christian should maintain a room in their heart that is a sanctuary for God and God alone. And that sanctuary should be hermetically sealed off from everyone else in the world. You, Christians, should have a room in your heart that is a sanctuary for God and God alone, and you let no one in there. Only you and God get to go in that sanctuary. And your soul has intercourse with His Spirit. You have dealings with Him that only He and you know about. I was with some friends in England earlier this year. We got to go to John Wesley's home in London, right across the road from Bunhill Fields. The first time I had been there, we took a brief tour of his house. John Wesley, of course, the great Methodist preacher, and we went up to his bedroom, and his bedroom is very small, probably not but a quarter the size of most master bedrooms, small little bedroom, but it, there was a closet next to it, and you open the door, and the closet's not but window here, wood floor, and all that there is in the closet is a prayer cushion, a prayer stool. If you grew up in high church settings, Catholic settings, Episcopalian settings, you know what that is. That's the little stool you can lean on so your knees aren't on the hardwood floor. There was a prayer cushion, and then there was a desk with a Bible open, and that's all that was in the room, and this was Wesley's prayer closet, and he would go there day by day by day by day. And the thought occurred to me, you know, if you know, the door pane could talk, what could they tell us about the secrets of Wesley's heart disclosed only to God? The hours and hours of this man just bringing his burdens to God and God alone in his sight, in secret, in his room, door shut. He had his closet. It was a symbol of a sanctuary in his own heart where he would know intercourse between his spirit and God's. It was said of John Knox, one historian uh, wrote this, that the most important moment in all of Scotland's history is whenever John Knox retired to his room to pray. 
Isn't that something? When he was alone with God, it was the most important moment in the life of the nation. Uh, Many of you know Martin Lloyd-Jones, the 20th century preacher. I've read this quote before, but I read it again for your edification. This is a quote from a man named Dr. Alan Redpath. He wrote these words to Lloyd-Jones in 1968, the year that Lloyd-Jones retired. Redpath was a friend of Lloyd-Jones. And listen to what he wrote to him. He said, I have marveled at the grace of God and the anointing of the Spirit constantly maintained upon you over 30 years of ministry. This can only be the outcome of the building of a secret history with God. In your own life, which has been a tremendous challenge, an example to hundreds of others, including myself, who would have fared better if we had followed it in such a disciplined way. A secret history with God. How wonderful. Brother, sister, is there any part of your spiritual life and your spiritual autobiography that is known only to you and God? Or is everything you are before God all put out in public for all of us to see? Do you nurture a secret history with God? And would that secret history be just a couple flimsy chapters? Or could you fill volumes of your private communion with God? A secret history known only between you and Him. Brothers and sisters, there is a sweetness and a richness of relationship with God that can only be known and experienced in secret. I'll say that again. There is a sweetness and richness of relationship with God that can only be known and experienced in secret. Do you know what I love most about my wife, Jenna? It is none of your business. She understands me in ways you couldn't possibly understand. And I know her and the secrets of her heart and her makeup in ways no one here could possibly comprehend. And our relationship is sweetened by its secrecy that we are known perfectly and totally and only by one another. It's very common now for people to do uh, birth photography. While I'm offending everybody on social media today, I might as well put this out there. Uh, birth photography is very popular to an older generation. Uh, it's common now that you would have a photographer come and take pictures at the birth, okay? And there's nothing wrong with birth photography. And we were asking, we were talking to each other, are we going to go ahead and have a photographer come and do birth photography? Are we going to pay for that service? And I remember talking about this with Jenna, and, and we just decided, you know what? We're going to let this be one of those occasions uh, where the memories and the sweetness of what happens only exists in my heart and your heart and the Lord's. And that brought a kind of preciousness to the whole occasion. It, no one is going to be able to see this but us. No one's going to be able to savor this moment but us. Secrecy between my heart and hers has enriched our relationship. I think every married couple here knows something of what I'm talking about. Well, what am I saying? What's the principle? Privacy with God and a secret history with Him is the lifeblood of our Christianity. It's the essence of who we are. To be with God in the secret place and to pour out my heart in ways I could never do with my fellow men. To speak to Him as my heavenly Father who knows me perfectly and to know fellowship and depth of communion with Him in ways I will never know with anyone else in this world. And do you know what the text says? Look at this. Is it verse 6? Your Father who sees in secret. No, no, it says your father who is in secret. Patri su tohento crypto. Your father who is in secret. What's that saying? It's saying that if I leave this crowded room now and if I go back to my study and I close the door, God is there. He is with me in the secret place. And what's more, he sees me there. He resides there. He lives there. Friends, what greater incentive could we have for seeking God early in the morning or late at night of excusing ourselves from the table, going into a private place, wherever that might be for you? My friend, your Father is in secret. 
That should make us want to run to the secret place because he's there. And my friend, your father sees you when you're in secret. He knows you and he loves you. And he wants to meet with you there in the private place. I need to draw quickly to a close. We'll consider the last two marks of true piety very briefly. True piety is taken up with God and his approval. That's point number two. True piety is taken up with God and his approval. Your father who sees in secret will reward you. True piety holds the reward that God offers as the most important and precious thing in the world. His smile and approval are everything to these sorts of people. They want the treasures found at his right hand forevermore, and they are sweeter than any treasures they can have through the attention and applause of the men and women around them. Such people are freed from man's opinion and approval and applause, and they think only of God and his smile and his reward. I'll move on from there to the third and final mark of true piety. The heart of true piety is found in intimate communion with God as one's heavenly Father. The heart of true piety is found in intimate communion with God, and the words I want to emphasize are, as one's heavenly Father. I'm going to speak more about this next week when we consider the Lord's Prayer, but I'll just say this now. In Matthew 6, 1 through 18, uh, the word Heavenly Father, or Father, uh, appears ten times by my count. I hope I did the math right. Ten times in 18 verses, God is said to be our Heavenly Father. You will not find 18 verses in the Old Testament that contain that many references to God as Heavenly Father. You will not find 18 chapters in the Old Testament that contain that many references to God as Heavenly Father. You will not find 18 books in the Old Testament that contain that many references to God as Heavenly Father. You will not find in the whole Old Testament that many references to God as Heavenly Father. There is something that is being revealed here in Christ that is in a special way new. Something's being disclosed, something's being revealed about the relationship between the Christian disciple, the citizen of Christ's kingdom, and who God is. With all these references to God as our Heavenly Father, what do we learn? That the controlling idea in all of our piety, in all of our Christian life, is to be that God is our Father in heaven. What is to control and shape my private devotion to God, my communion with Him, my fellowship with Him, my going to Him? It is that he is my Father who is in heaven. Now, I don't know if you saw the news. There was some Archbishop of York this week who complained before a gathering of Anglican clergy that we really shouldn't pray to our Father who is in heaven because that's the patriarchal, and for those who were victims of poor fathers, we really shouldn't address God that way. That's a very problematic way to address God for lots of people. To which I think I would want to respond, how will those people who were abused by their earthly fathers ever know that that was wrong? Is it not because we have a heavenly father who's perfect? And it's precisely because he's perfect and loves us in ways we couldn't comprehend that that sham father was such a pale reflection of what he ought to have been. You're here this morning and your father is not who he should have been. I have good news for you. If you are in Christ, you have a heavenly father. And he will not disappoint you or fail you in the way your earthly father did. Rather, this term father in heaven is to connote the warmest associations of affection, of love, of closeness, and of intimacy. And it is to control the way we think about God. When we go to God in the secret place, we are going to our Father who is in heaven, who knows what we need before we ask Him, who loves us with a love that's greater than the sweetest and purest love in this world. We're coming to Him as our Heavenly Father. This should control all of our piety, our private devotion. I close with an illustration. Some of you have heard me talk before about a man named Bob Prentice. 
Some of you knew Bob Prentice. I know I sometimes uh, repeat myself and tell the same stories. That's kind of the point. Uh, I want to tell this story every couple of years. Uh, Bob Prentice was one of the elders at Grace Reformed Baptist Church in Mevin. And he embodied, I think, the essence of this passage, what true piety looks like more than practically anyone else that I've known. Uh, Bob died in December of 2020 from complications due to COVID. Uh, he got COVID, it turned into pneumonia. He was 63, he was perfectly healthy. It really did shock us all when uh, Pastor P, as we called him, died. And I've told this story before of when uh, I came upon Pastor P once. Uh, Bob was, well, I, I, it was the occasion, I think, of my first sermon I ever preached at Grace Reformed Baptist Church. It was my first sermon ever, but the first sermon I preached at the church that planted this church. And back in those days, we had a Sunday night service that was like the Sunday morning service. So it'd be like a worship gathering, completely separate sermon, all different songs, same thing a second time. Kids, could you imagine that? A second service like this, we had to do it at 5.30 or something like that. We had a second service in the evening, and I was to preach the Sunday evening service, and I was quite nervous. And uh, I didn't really have a place to go. I, I had like a room at someone's house, and you know, I didn't really have a study or something like that. So I decided to get there uh, a couple of hours early, and I was going to find the most secluded place in the church I could possibly find, and I was going to go over my notes and prepare to preach that night. And I went down. We have the, had the Sunday school wing, and it was very long. And I went all the way to the back of the property. It was kind of the last room. And it was always pretty dark. It was gray painting, and there were the faces of very solemn men uh, on the walls, like John Calvin and J.C. Ryle, all these men with long beards, kind of like... Uh, John Beale over here, all these faces, but they're much more solemn than John's face. What I'm trying to convey is this is not like the most attractive part of the building. Uh, it was, if you wanted to be isolated, you would go in this hallway and you go down to the furthest corner of that hallway into the furthest room if you wanted to be isolated and alone and didn't want anybody to hear you. And so I went down there, maybe it's 3.30, 4 o'clock in the afternoon, and I get to the last room, hardly anyone else is in the building, I open the door. The lights are off, and there's Bob on his knees before the Lord. And he gets up, embarrassed. And I say, uh, I felt awkward myself. Uh, uh, oh, I'm sorry. Um, what were you doing? And uh, he was flustered and red in his face. And he said, um, I've been coming here every year to pray for adult children who have left this church outside of Christ, and I've listed their names, and I've been praying for them over the years. I said, how long have you been doing this? He said, oh, it's been many years now, I suppose. That was, for me, a picture of a man building a secret history with God, a man who was not interested in the approval and applause of man but wanted to be with his heavenly Father, making his burdens known to him and him alone. And friends, those of us who knew Bob or have known people like Bob, we may not be able to rehearse all their achievements and all the ways they've advanced in this life, but I can tell you when I get to heaven, I want to see Bob Prentice's crown. I want to see the reward that will be his when the Father who saw in secret will give him the unfading crown of life. Brothers and sisters, I hope this sermon is used of God to move each one of us to love true devotion and true piety and the secret place with our Father who is in heaven, that we might know him more and be known by him more, that we might love him more, that we might come to him as children to a father and build a secret history with our Father who is in heaven. Let's pray together. Lord, surely many of us are aware of how much of our purported piety and godliness can so often be lived out before others. Some of us at times have too much of you toward man and his approval. We've given not enough thought to you, your smile, your pleasure, 
experiencing love with you in the secret place. Father, we pray that you would give us the grace and the help to nurture and cultivate within our lives a closer walk with you that is fed through hour upon hour and day upon day spent in your presence with you, in your word and in prayer. We pray if there are things in our hearts that have presented obstacles to us allowing our hearts to run freely to you, that we might know greater closeness with you as our Father. We pray that you would remove them. We pray that we would repent of any sin that is obscuring our view of you and that is impeding time spent with you. We pray that you would please move upon all of us to pursue more and more our Father who is in secret. And may we enjoy better than ever, more than ever, the gaze of our Father who sees in secret, who knows us and loves us, who knows what we ask or what we need before we would ever ask. Please, Lord, give us richer and deeper experiences of your love and a fellowship with you. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.